Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Thank you. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I'd like to thank the contributors to my show and also thank you, my listeners, for listening. Uh, my executive producer is Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, senior editor, Amanda Steele, author of Ghosts of Me, binaural production engineer, Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and my monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And if you are interested in becoming a contributor to this show, just go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you find all different ways to contribute. It could be financial to help cover some of the cost of the show. Uh, it could be time by uh, just posting it on Facebook or Twitter. And I'm um, just putting this out there, too. I haven't put out a newsletter in about three months, so I'm kind of looking for somebody to take care of that. <laughs> and uh, so uh, thanks, guys, for listening, and check that out to contribute. And now our guest for today, without any further ado, is Dawson Church. Thank you for coming on today. Gary, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So you're a neuroscientist? I write about neuroscience. I'm a science writer. I do a lot of research, primary research myself. And then I write about science, Gary, and I try and make these really complex problems understandable to ordinary people and more importantly, applicable in their lives. So I do research. I also manage a large nonprofit called the Veteran Stress Project. We apply the results of our clinical studies to helping people with PTSD. And so I'm really into science, what it can teach us, and then making it useful in our lives. Awesome. Um, I was just checking out your most recent book, Bliss Brain. And um, I find that kind of stuff really fascinating because I mean, I, I've written a book called Enlightenment Guaranteed, the only book on Zen you've ever need. So, so <laughs> and, and, and it definitely meditation from the very beginning, like it changed my life. It changed everything for me. And it's such a simple, basic practice that that was, it had a profound change. And like for me, it was like, it was like almost unexplainable. But you, from the point of view that you're talking about, when you're looking at these different chemicals, neurotransmitters and pathways, you're able to explain that in a scientific way. Yeah. Um, so and when you do, also you see which forms of meditation get you there the fastest. And there are seven neurochemicals that people doing effective meditations are producing in their brains. There are actually more, but there are seven markers and they do different things. And it turns out our, a lot of them are things we know about, know about already. Like, for example, serotonin mm -hmm. is basically your satisfaction molecule. And so when you feel that sense, like you have a nice meal, and then after that serotonin kicks in, maybe you feel a little bit drowsy too, because serotonin is the precursor of melatonin, mm -hmm. which helps you regulate your sleep. So things like serotonin we know, dopamine is a really easy one. Dopamine is that sense of excitement, that sense of craving, wanting something. And so what I began to look at 
a few years back was why I was so happy in meditation and why people who meditate effectively are reaching these ecstatic states because they aren't just you know happy. I mean, read read the poetry of uh, uh, a poet like Rumi or Hafiz, yeah. or read the the the, the meditations of, of of Saint the interior castle castle of Saint Teresa, and you realize these people weren't just like feeling good; they were in these ecstatic states. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to figure out why people get so happy, and the big clue was the discovery of a molecule called anandamide. And anandamide has been identified in the in the brains of meditators, and it has the same chemical structure as THC, the active ingredient in marijuana. And and THC and anandamide dock with the same receptor sites in the brain. So you basically, if you meditate deeply, you get this burst of this THC-like compound, anandamide, mm-hmm. in your brain. You also get a lot of serotonin and a lot of dopamine, as well as things like oxytocin, the bonding neurochemical. And so those Rumi's and Hafiz's and St. Catherine's and St. Teresa's, they weren't a Mother Teresa, for example, to pick a contemporary saint. They weren't just feeling good. They were feeling they're actually super high on all these neurochemicals produced in the brain endogenously during meditation. And they're able to release those chemicals without smoking a joint? <laughs> lots and lots and lots of them. In fact, we're now running a couple of studies and also doing special meditations that help people actually create these in their brains. And we're finding things like they're making so much serotonin, they're having hallucinations. And so when they open their eyes after, say, 30 minutes of meditation, using these very specialized meditations designed to engender these neurochemicals in your brain, they are so high, it's like they've had psilocybin. Because psilocybin, magic mushrooms, is the artificial form Mm -hmm. of serotonin. Those two things dock with those those receptor sites dopamine is the same kind of process your reward system in your brain as cocaine and heroin so one of the paradoxical things we're finding gary is we're having to add a component to the meditations when people finish to Uh actually bring them back to earth they are so sky high once they've done this that they can't drive a car or balance their checkbook so we're having to like reformulate our meditations as people are flooded with these pleasurable neurochemicals and brought into these bliss brain states, we need to make sure that they're they're safe and they're able to change the diaper, pick up the kids from school and do all those other good things when they get <laughs> done with meditation. <laughs> wow. I, I mean, I, I've been meditating for a long time. Like I practice sort of like a basic mindfulness meditation, like a mm-hmm. uh, shamatha vipassana type of meditation. And, uh, only once did I really reach an ecstatic state, and, and, and that was time consuming. It took, you know, it was like sit, I was literally on top of a mountain for three days meditating in upstate New York at a monastery. Um, so, what type of meditation do, are you using where people can achieve these states in 30 minutes at home? Yeah, so meditation comes to us as part of a long tradition are trying to solve the basic human problem of suffering. And suffering is mental, suffering is emotional. Emotional suffering produces an enormous toll on the human body. I did several clinical trials of cortisol, your main stress hormone, and we find that people age faster, much faster. Their cell metabolism is impeded. It gets in the way of their digestion, their heart function, their lung capacity, all kinds of things degrade with cortisol. And so um, 
for for a long time, we've been looking at meditation as one source of overcoming stress. Long before we knew about cortisol, we knew that people are stressed. And one of the answers that's been handed down to us over tens of thousands of years is meditate and you can get less stressed. Mm -hmm. And so all of these methods of meditation, and there are seven basic types of meditation I cover in Bliss Brain, and I won't cover them all now, but you know, one for example is moving meditation. So that's Tai Chi, Qigong, yoga, walking meditation, some mm -hmm. kind of movement in meditation. Some are following the breath, some, are, some use chanting, some use inspired readings, but all of the, the, the goal of all of them is to bring us to this peaceful state. So for tens of thousands of years, this knowledge has been curated in monasteries, secret societies, initiatory societies, shamans and their students and apprentices learn this, but yeah. only after often a very, very long initiation. So this knowledge has been hoarded by a very small number of people and available to a very small number of people. In Bliss Brain, I call them the 1%. Right. It turns out that around 1980, there were about 1% of Americans med meditating. If you go back in time, go back to say medieval England or medieval Germany or India in 1100 or China around the same time, they were keeping records. And again, about 1% of the people had some kind of spiritual focus to their lives. So it's been 1% across cultures, across time, for at least a thousand years. But what we've now developed over the last while, in 1929, Hans Berger, a German doctor, developed the electroencephalograph. And for the first time, this, this machine produced these squiggles on a piece of paper showing brain waves. Yeah. And then later on in the 1950s, a British engineer who'd worked on radar during World War II, Maxwell Cade, applied the electroencephalograph and measured the brainwaves of masters, spiritual masters. Mm -hmm. And then after him came Robert Becker and others. Then in the last 30 years, we've had much more sophisticated tools. We've had MRIs. Right. And now we can look at the MRI signatures of Tibetan monks, Franciscan nuns, all these modern day St. Francis's and these modern day rubies. And what this has allowed us to do is figure out what's effective and what's not. And it turns out that what's effective is is extremely effective and a lot of it is ineffective the, the, the saffron robes and the prayer beads the prayer shawls and all of those old religious practices they mm -hmm. really aren't moving the needle more than a little bit of placebo but there are things you can do in meditation that within a minute will produce a dopamine surge in your brain and you'll follow that up with oxytocin if you if you do this right then norepinephrine and then all the other pleasure neurochemicals within the first session you're hooked. We had a lady who wrote into us who said, my name is Tony Tomlinson. You can use my real name. I, I'm a failed meditator. I'm stressed 99% of the time. I'm burned out on life. I'm burned out on parenting. When I sat down to do your meditation, my mind told me, Tony, you're wasting your time. You'll never get there. And then I just followed these simple steps you give on your website. And I was in bliss in a few moments. I had tears of ecstasy running down my cheeks. So that's what now we can train people to do in a few minutes because we use all the benefit of MRIs and EEGs to study mm -hmm. the brainwaves of master meditators and train people like Tony to get there within five minutes or less. So what are what are some of the effective techniques? Like, like is, it fo is focusing on the breath an effective technique? It depends on you. And for some people, the moving meditations are great. 
Others need guided meditations or verbal meditations. Some chanting is effective. And so what I did in 2008, in collaboration with people from the HeartMath Institute and Joe Dispenza and Bruce Lipton and several other people mm -hmm. who were, we were all looking at effective ways of shifting people's stress. So I put together a set of simple steps, seven steps. I called it eco-meditation. And we know that if you do eco-meditation, your brain function changes within a few minutes, very, very, very quickly. You get into that altered state of a meditation master. And it's simply breathing at a certain rate, relaxing certain muscles, having certain visual images in your mind. You do these seven things and very, very, very quickly you're there. You can do them when you're moving or walking. Right. You can do them when you're chanting. It doesn't matter what, what other overlay you place on, on that. But these seven things get most people to that state really, really, really fast. Mm -hmm. And then with practice, you're, you're motivated to do it over and over and over again because you're experiencing these surges of, all of these highly addictive neurochemicals. You want your heroin, dopamine, cocaine, serotonin, psilocybin, THC, you want that. So we find there's no problem with people doing meditation on day two, day three, day 17. I talked to one woman at the live workshop. She said, Dawson, I got so excited the first time I did your meditation. I made a vow to myself I would do it every single day for the next 90 days. And I said to her, it's great, you know, you're getting your real practice going there and and what day are you on right now she said i'm on day 137 <laughs> because you get so addicted to feeling good bliss brain you're just in this blissful state every day and you aren't going to leave so that's that's the ticket doing effective things and then you are motivated by the drug-like nature of these pleasure neurochemicals to keep on doing it interesting um like with like let's take an example for for um it mixing different styles of meditation like doing like a mantra and say visualizing some type of sacred geometry at the same time um is that effective we have different information processing styles so to a person who's visual Mm -hmm. then seeing something, visualizing something, be really, really effective. But to an auditory person, maybe not effective at all. We have people who are auditory information processors, and the visuals leave them totally cold, and vice versa. So they may need to hear gongs. They may need to hear sounds. They need to ha have a guided visualization. For some people, words are really effective at bringing them there. For other people, they're a turnoff. So it just depends on your information processing style as to which one's effective for you. It's kind of like a buffet. You walk down the buffet mm -hmm. line, you sample the uh, deviled eggs, try the grilled shrimp, try the seasoned kale, and after a while you get a pretty good idea of what works for your brain. And that is then the, the effect meditation method that'll work for you. But the seven steps we recommend, again, you layer into whatever else you're doing and will put you into that, that peak state. You're then in bliss brain, you then will keep on practicing. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, one of the cool things, Gary, it changes your brain. There's one story in this brain of this astrophysicist called Graham Phillips, who was a TV personality at a TV show called Catalyst. And he, because he was a TV guy, he decided to learn meditation, but he also brought his whole TV crew into an advanced neuroimaging lab mm -hmm. and had these neuroscientists measure 
the volume of tissue in different parts of his brain before he began the meditation process. So there he was, never done meditation, total skeptic actually. And he gets his brain measured, gets his, all his reflexes measured, does all these cognitive tests, and then begins his pro process of learning mindfulness. And after two weeks, he noticed behavior changes. He was more patient with people. He was a better driver. All these behaviors began to shift. In eight weeks, he went back in the neuroimaging lab. They measured the volume of his brain again. And again, nowadays, our MRIs are so high resolution, we can measure the activity of a single bundle of neurons. They measured his brain, brain activity, measured the volume of tissue in different parts of his brain. Some parts of his brain grew by three or 4% in only eight weeks. And the emotion regulation circuit, this little circuit in the center of the brain that regulates you getting annoyed, angry, upset, miserable, resentful, whatever it might be, that little circuit in the center of his brain in eight weeks grew by 22.8%. In other words, there's a fifth <laughs> more neural hardware in that part of the brain to regulate negative emotions in only eight weeks. So our, our brains are being remodeled almost from the first meditation by the quality of our consciousness. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, with results like that, 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 that changes like the whole, would change the whole model for uh, psychology and psychiatry. Totally. Yeah. You know, if you've been moving people yeah. away from, you know, treating things with, with medications and, 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 you know, years and years and years and years of therapy to, yeah. to, to meditating for eight weeks. And we're just beginning. I mean, neuroscience research in this field is, is just beginning. It's called contemplative neuroscience, a whole new field of neuroscience. And we're just now figuring out the questions that we need to ask, the brain regions we need to focus on, and the kinds of studies we, we need to do to really get a better handle on this. But already we know a lot. And we know that if you just do certain practices and do them again daily for a while, that they will change your brain. We had, I did a randomized controlled trial with colleagues at Bond University in Australia, big advanced neuroimaging lab there. And we found that in just one month of doing these seven simple steps that I train people in, in one month, people had a shutdown in a part of the brain called the default mode network, mm -hmm. which defaults to misery. Basically, when the default mode network's on, most people are in, in the future, worrying about the future, having regret about the past. It's just the 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 the, the, the queen of negative emotion in your, <laughs> your brain, the default mode network. It's where the brain defaults to, and you have nothing better to do with, with, your, with your attention. So we found in those people after only four weeks of this meditation that their default mode network was quiet, and their empathy network was all lit up, highly mm -hmm. active. And again, their brain anatomy is now changing. The more empathetic, the more compassionate, the more loving, they're way happier than they were before. So again, it does not take long. In four weeks, we saw these massive changes in functionality and in anatomy in the, in the human brain. Wow. I know for me, the big change was, I, I would say... Until I was about 35 when I really started meditating, up until that time, I, I was dominated by my thoughts. I was my thoughts. My brain is what drove everything. And then 
and I had no control. I never even thought about controlling my thoughts. Or, or, or the harder I tried to control them, the worse it even got. <laughs> but, but, but when I learned how to meditate yeah. and learn how to sit back and just observe, sit there and just like, okay, I'm having all these thoughts. And just let, like letting them go, you know. And, and every once in a while, I could maybe just focus on something positive for, for a little bit. It, it changed how I looked at everything because I realized, like, okay, I, I all this garbage is not me. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And you get a distance from your life, a distance from the drama around you, a distance from the drama going on in the world. Because the world, you look, what look at the news? There's always something negative <laughs> to focus on. There's also a ton of positive to focus on. Mm -hmm. And then there's the drama inside your own head. Like uh, we have. We have one of our servers, one of our projects that we have a problem with is the server. And so we needed to make a server move. But if this is a big video site where we have all of our, our practitioners interacting in real time with, with their clients. And so a server move is a big deal. And we've been having problems with the server for a few months. And so server move. So one, one day I was in the thick of the server move. I sat down to meditate. I keep on thinking about the server move. And I say, now, this is my time of contemplation and inner peace. I don't want to think about the server moves. So I, again, focus on my meditation, breath, focus, and I'm thinking about the server move. And I say, no, I don't want to think about the server move. I want to think about the meditation I'm in right now. But about the server move, it's my, I mean, my brain, you know, our thoughts will drive us crazy because our brains do not evolve to be quiet. Our brains evolve to focus on whatever is wrong in the environment. Your ancestors didn't survive because they sat there quietly and contemplated the beautiful sunset. They survived because they were hyper-vigilant for the tiger that might sneak up and eat them. Right. So that is how we survive. And now we've got this huge skull full of threat assessment machinery. We now tell it, oh, well, just don't do that anymore. It doesn't work. We can't tell our brains not to do that. Yeah. So you need, you need little little hacks and 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 tricks to 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 really sh shift the body, shift the brain. Mm -hmm. And so we we focused on those in neuroscience. Now we know what they are. We have some pretty good ones, and we can get people to that that calm state very very quickly. Right. I know for me, I just kind of use humor. I I can just look at my <laughs> thoughts, yeah, laugh at them, and just you know, I don't I don't fight them. I don't disregard them. I just like, yeah. <laughs> All right, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I see what my brain is trying to do. I know why it's trying to do it. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's useful. I would say maybe 2% of the time it's actually <laughs> useful. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other 98% of it is, is not. Or, you know, I don't really need all that stuff. You know, it's, you know, and what we find is if, if you're able to, to distance yourself the way that you, you're you able to do from your thoughts, that actually you, you're you not thinking about things, having that quiet prefrontal cortex actually makes you more creative. In studies I describe in detail in this brain, we show that people who do this get twice as creative. Their, their creative ability goes more than doubles. Their ability to solve complicated problems goes up fivefold. Mm -hmm. So that problem you have with that employee on your team, that problem you have with your server. Oh, I'm going to tell you about the server too. <laughs> so I just eventually did manage to just meditate 
And actually, I went away on a, on a retreat that weekend, and I just got deep into meditation. I was in I was in the, in the in nature. I was walking on the beach. I was just really being in this deep space. So Monday morning, I get back to work. I'm meditating again, beginning of the day, and suddenly this thought cro- crosses my mind: You don't need to move the server. All you need to move is the home page of the site. The server can keep on handling all the video in the background. All we need to move is the front page of the home page of the site, not the entire server. So Monday morning, I'm then a few hours later, later meeting with all the tech guys, these brilliant people. I mean, they, their IQs are higher than mine. They're mm-hmm. so smart. And I say, listen, guys, let me just run this by you. I don't think we have to move the server at all. All we have to do is move the home page. And though you could have heard a pen drop. Everyone's like, oh my goodness. That's totally right. We don't have to move the server. This thing has been, been totally bogging us down for six months. So what happens is you get much more creative, your ability to solve complicated problems like the server, like your uh, relationship with your teenage daughter, like your boss who you have a bad relationship with. There are all kinds of things in your life that start to really improve because your problem-solving ability increases fivefold when you're in this in this sort of state. So you are better at life when you are good at meditation. Hmm. Do you find that? Do you think that some of the answers, like the one that came to you about the server, came <laughs> like when we quiet our minds? Do you think some of the information that we were that we open ourselves up to some type of spiritual channel where some of the answers just flow through? Like like they're almost like beyond our logic? Well, in my previous book, it was published in 2018, it's called Mind to Matter. And Bliss Brain is all about these ecstatic states, the neurochemicals, the brain waves, and how to cultivate them yourself. Mind to Matter is all about the link between thought and thing. So it's a rigorous scientific review of the relationship of the thoughts in our consciousness and the things that manifest around us and how that process occurs. And when you look at the science, it turns out that the brain is not a creator of consciousness. Consciousness did not arise from a complex brain. Consciousness is in the field around us. We're in this this huge information field, much larger than our bodies, much larger than the planet. And these are that they're really interesting studies that link our thoughts, our individual brain waves to huge cycles that affect the sun, affect the solar system, and affect the galaxy and beyond. So we are bathed in these information fields all the time. What the brain does is the brain is a transducer of these fields into what's going on around us. It translates these into what's happening in our material reality. And so people have these experiences of synchronicity, of flow, when they're in those states and they let go of their local reality. So in chapter one and chapter seven of Mind to Matter, it's all about how you can release your focus on your local reality. Now Mm -hmm. you need to focus on local reality. Often you need to do your taxes, you need to make sure you have food on the table, you need to treat the people around you with love and respect and courtesy. There's a lot of local reality we have to attend to. But if you can, for half an hour every day in the morning, tune into non-local reality and those information fields, that's where you download creativity. And we find that people like Albert Einstein said that every great scientific discovery has been made when we release our our grasp, our mm-hmm. clinging to the immediate stuff around us, and we let ourselves move 
into those information fields. Napoleon Hill, who wrote Think and Grow Rich, chapter 15 of Napoleon Bill Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich, is all about him saying we cannot solve the problems at the local level at which we create them. We have to release our hold on that. We have to let our imagination move into non-local mm -hmm. reality where we download these solutions. So a lot of people have been telling us we create the reality around us with our minds. And so doing that every morning, you definitely create a very different reality from uh -huh. one which is created when you're enmeshed in local mind. Wow. Yeah, it's also like one of the things that Einstein said was that the, the you can't, the same brain that creates the problem, you can't solve the problem with that same mind. You have, you have to go outside of that mind to, to solve it. You do, absolutely. And when you're stuck in that mind, you you can't figure it out. You're, you know, you're, you're, you have this committee of people trying to figure out how to move the server and you've got these br brilliant minds all trying to figure it out, but you're stuck at the level of non-local mind. When you go to the level of level of local mind, when you go to the level of non-local mind in meditation, that's where the the breakthrough ideas come from, and it also gives you that perspective on your thoughts in your life. You mentioned having that perspective mm -hmm. of saying these are just thoughts that are going through my mind, and I am not those thoughts. If I am witnessing the thoughts, I know I'm that non-local self, and then of course you have access to all the wisdom, all the information all of the connection there and you suddenly find yourself connected to other people like when i wrote mind to matter there were all these synchronicities in writing the chapter writing the book every time i had to find a solution to a difficult scientific problem as i wrote the book the right person the right uh contact the right reference the right study would just pop up in, in my inbox it was just almost miraculous the way that happens so i've learned mm -hmm. now that synchronicity just is flow with it just be in that place, enjoy it every day. Don't sweat anything, the big stuff, the small stuff, just basically tune into that non-local mind, get into flow. And then when you're in flow, things happen effortlessly in your local reality. Yeah, I've totally noticed that even with my podcast, you know, with some of the different topics like I want to cover. And a lot of times, like I don't even have to go out and look for it. They kind of just come to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that I, I was watching the, the video on one of your websites and, you know, like, I'm, like one of the things like too is like for people listening to this, they're like, oh yeah, well, it's probably easy for this guy because he's got a house, he's got a family, he's got money, he's, you know what I mean? And, but I was watching that video and like you were talking about, you know, the instance where your house burned down, you know, and like you pretty much lost all your stuff and went through this really hardship and um and you were able to use this practice to go through that situation so so for you it's not just this you know <clears throat> book or, or or steps or anything this is something that you've used absolutely and so for most of the last 20 years we've had the veteran stress project running i've worked through the Veteran Stress Project, we've worked with over 20,000 veterans, offering them free PTSD treatments. And so it's been a big social project, very much a part of my life, and studying PTSD, studying the brain, studying cortisol, the neurochemistry of stress, and then my house burned down. I mean, it was just so unexpected. Mm -hmm. It was October 9th of 2017, and uh, I'd written Mind to Matter. Mind to Matter was off, off the publisher, it was gonna be published the next year. And my wife woke me up at 12.45, 
at night, shook me by the shoulder. I looked out the window. There was a glow on the horizon, which if you live in Northern California and it's fire season is not a good thing. We literally sprinted through the house, grabbed our car keys, mm-hmm. and there were just ashes and trees were beginning to explode as we we left. It was it was it was super intense. We just barely escaped with our our lives, and actually, uh, twenty two of our our neighbors died. Uh, they were just oh. the fire was moving at the speed a football field every three seconds, and people people died. They died in their homes. They died in their cars. Five thousand four hundred homes were destroyed that night. It was just, it was carnage. It was chaos, and we suddenly found ourselves with literally nothing other than the clothes on our back, cell phone, and a car key, and our lives were just our office burned down. Our I mean our our lives were devastated. We lost absolutely every single thing we we had, and so it took us a it took us a, a substantial amount of time, like two or three years, to really move past it. But like the third day. I said to my my wife, I said, when I woke up in the morning, I said, we have to meditate right now. It's an emergency. We have to meditate right now because we're we're not ourselves. We aren't in our bodies. And Gary, as we meditated on that day, we literally felt ourselves drop back in. And this is only a couple of days after the fire. Mm -hmm. And we started to see the humor in it. Just like, for example, we had a whole bunch of stuff in the garage that we hated, some that I was supposed to sell on Craigslist, never got around to selling, other projects I was supposed to do, you know how it is, it's in your garage, we had a lot of, four garages, all the stuff. It's like, the garages are burned down. I can cross all those things off my list. I, I texted our office manager, because our office burned down, and said, Heather, we've had the goal of the paperless office for the last 10 years, and guess what? We just achieved that goal. There was this single shred of paper. <laughs> and so I mean, it's not like we were, you know, lighthearted in every way. I mean, we went through periods of grief and loss and crying. And it's not, but, but a couple of days off, after the fire, we were seeing, seeing the humor in it. And um, so we went through this, this, this long process of putting our lives back together again, rebuilding financially, because we had, it was devastating for us financially. By the end of the, the end of the following year, we had uh, gone through all of our savings. I'd lost all my retirement funds. We, because the business was doing so badly, uh, I'd have an operation. I mean, it was 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 a, by right. all external measures, it was as miserable a year as you can imagine. And so, what I, I did during that year was I I was meditating every every morning, going for these advanced mental states, and I was hitting bliss brain day after day after day. I was just in bliss brain every day. So I thought, I have to write a book for people about this. I have to tell them that you can go through devastating loss and you can still be in absolute bliss. And so that's what this story part of the book is. It's also the science of Mm -hmm. how this works in the brain. These wonderful neurochemicals like anandamide, the bliss molecule, like serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin. So you're getting all this, this juice. And it is wonderful. And you can learn to, that's resilience. I mean, resilience doesn't mean no bad stuff ever happens to you. Resilience means your house burns down, you lose your retirement savings, and you are a fundamentally strong person because you rewired your brain, like Graham Phillips did, with that 22.8% increase in the size of the dentate gyrus. You now have the hardware in your brain to get you through the tough times. Mm -hmm. So like when the pandemic hit in 2020, it was like, Gary... (laughs) 
Uh, oh, it's just a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> That's nothing compared to what I went through in 2017, 2018, two years before. So, oh, I think I can handle the pandemic and the economic crash. <laughs> right? I, I, I totally yeah. relate to that. Like, I mean, I've had, I've gone, I've been blessed with a couple of times to, uh, lose everything in my life you know my home my life all that kind of stuff jobs money and and i always kind of bounced back somehow yeah. you know i don't, I, I can't yeah. explain it but i know it happens so so it's not even like a fear anymore because i i know i can always no. come back from whatever happens and um yeah and yeah. and plus too you know like like with the pandemic you know i was kind of looking at it like I used to live in New Jersey and like during like 9-11, like right after that, our neighborhood was the one with the anthrax stuff. So we would get like our mail, <laughs> our mail would come and it would be like all burned up because you would run it through like these microwaves, you know, and it was like people were like terrified, you know, and I kind of compared like, well, like the pandemic happened. I was like, well, this, this really isn't much different than what I've already <laughs> experienced. You know, yeah, it's, it's just fear. Lived, once you've lived through one of those situations, then you are resilient. And you aren't just, I talk about states and traits in this brain. States are feeling happy mm -hmm. or feeling resilient. Traits are you are happy, you are resilient in the form of neurological hardware in your brain. So a state is neurons firing, feeling good, feeling blissful. That's great. But when something else happens, then you lose that state. If you have the trait of yeah. happiness, you've literally built the neural wiring in your brain to where it's hardware now. So the next bad thing happens and you are able to handle it. You then know you'll come through the other end and that makes you even more resilient. So you become more and more and more resilient over time. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in these Tibetan monks who spend say 20,000 hours in meditation, <laughs> the stress parts of the brain start to shrink and atrophy. Mm -hmm. The craving parts of the brain, the parts of our brains that crave things that aren't good for us, the nucleus accumbens, that part of the brain begins to atrophy. And the happiness parts of the brain grow. So these people aren't happy as a state. Mm -hmm. Now they're happy as a trait. And that's why the subtitle of, of this brain is rewiring your brain for resilience, creativity, and joy. You have this doubling of creativity, you become infinitely more resilient, and you become just so happy that like you you open your eyes up meditation every day, you look around you, and you basically throw yourself into your life like a child uh -huh. at play. And I, I just, I'm just passionate about sharing this message with people because most people, Gary, are living their lives with a little tiny dribble of happiness and they think that their lives will get better maybe sometime in the future after they retire or something like that. But <laughs> we have the capacity for enormous amounts of joy. We're letting ourselves have this much serotonin and dopamine mm -hmm. when we can have this much serotonin and dopamine. And it is wonderful to let yourself just flow with over overwhelming joy, creativity every day. We are capable of much higher states than, than possible. Being a scientist, I measure them. And the number is seven. We can get seven times as happy measured by, by brain waves as baseline. So wow. most people are allowing themselves a little more happiness. You've become, research shows, you'd be seven times happier 
than you are today. Right. It's like um, I was doing an interview this morning, and the guy was like a, like a motivational speaker for corporations. And, um, and I was, you know, talking about, you know, happiness versus, you know, success. And how I think it's Nepal is like the happiest yes. place in the world. And, you know, most of them are monks, right? They just, yeah. the, and, and they live very, very simple, basic lives. They don't need yeah. TV. They don't need all this nonsense. They just have the basic stuff and they're, and they're happy, you know? And, um, and I guess the point I was trying to make with him was um, happiness isn't success. Happiness is happiness. Success is happiness. <laughs> yeah. Success is happiness. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I met I met literally one billionaire with a B and many multimillionaires who are not happy, not very happy at all. And I met monks who have nothing. Some of those people in Nepal are living on $5 a day, and they're just in these ecstatic states. And it's not as though money is bad. You don't want to aspire to, to having an impact. Like I mentioned, I do the Veterans Express mm -hmm. Project, and it was really hard at first to get that project going. Now we treat thousands of veterans a year. It's rolling. But, but you do stuff in the world. It's not like you go to this ivory tower and just have a, a nice time. That was the way we did things like 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago. You'd go out of the t marketplace into the temple and spend the rest of your life behind closed doors eating rice and meditating. Now we need social justice. We need to be there addressing racial inequality. We need to be there to be, to be addressing income inequality and political inequality. I mean, there are, there are, there are great problems, climate change. Mm -hmm. So um, we're not like in an ivory tower just strumming a harp and saying all is well. We are activists as mystics, but we are mystics and we are happy. We bring that, that activism to our, our, our work. One of the reasons why the stress, many people try to get something like the Veterans Stress Project started around 2006, 2007, when we began. There were like five other projects like ours that tried to get going. And all of the other people doing it were unsuccessful, and we were too. The first few years, like now if you go to the Veterans Stress Project website, it says we treated 21,117 veterans over the last decade. But the first year, the number was 12. We had 12 therapists and we had 12 veteran clients that first year. It looked like an absolute flop. We just kept on going. And part of it was spiritual. We just weren't involved in the drama of failure. Mm -hmm. Winston Churchill defined success as the ability to move from failure I don't know if I, I've been making a minute. Success is the ability to move from failure to failure with undiminished enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're a mystic, you are, you know, you're in this, you're communing with non-local mind and there's all this love every day and you come back down to earth after your meditation and you do your social activism. You want to be excellent at your, at your work, at your marriage, at caring mm -hmm. for your body, at your diet. So, Sure, you're a mystic. Sure, you're out there with the universe, but you are really grounded here as well, and that means doing stuff in the world. Do you think a lot of unnecessary suffering is caused by materialism and that simple simplifying your life and becoming communing with nature more uh, a useful way to reconnect and reprogram the brain? Also, it's essential. Being even research shows that. 
being in t- being in nature shifts the expression of genes. So my big first big best-selling book in 2005 was called The Genie in Your Genes, all about epigenetics and how consciousness changes gene expression. And nature walking on the beach literally is dialing up the activity of certain genes. But one cool study published last year found that for urban dwellers, people who live in New York City or Chicago or Waco, Texas or San Francisco, if you just go take a walk in the park for a couple of hours, but do it as a vacation, treat it as a, as a break from everyday day affairs, that dials up those genes as well. So absolutely. And you want to do things deliberately to invoke these states and you want to do them regularly. So have regular retreats. I know I've my retreats are all on my calendar going two years into the future. Mm-hmm. And somebody says, can you do a show on those dates? The answer is no, I'm on a retreat. I just finished a two-month retreat in Hawaii. I was working on a new project to do with it, uh, a, a new kind of neuroscience new project. and um, But I took a two-month retreat, med- deep meditation every day, time on the volcano, time in nature, time in the rainforest, time on, on the beach, time commuting with non-local mind and you're again you're faced with some naughty problem in in your in your life mm-hmm. you commute with non-local mind and suddenly your local life gary gets way way easier and time in nature is an essential part of that process it's it's huge you know i mean just a simple example for me just for today um like i have I'm doing four podcasts in one day and it's my day off from work, you know, and people always like, are like, how do you do that? How do you do that? You know, but like right before I got on with you, I was just between podcasts. I was sitting out in my backyard and uh, we have like these bluebirds. They come every year and they make a nest in this little birdhouse that we have. And we watch them fly around and feed their babies and stuff. And like, like 10 minutes of that. And I feel like a new uh-huh. person. I'm like, yeah, that was cool. You know? That's not hard to do. No, it's, no, it didn't cost me any money or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we think we need need the big elaborate vacation or a lot of time, and then just becoming mindful and tuning into the simple things about your life and a relentless focus on the positive. What what are the what are the positive thoughts? Because again, we our brain has this thing which psychologists have measured since the nineteen thirties called the negativity bias. Mm-hmm. Just like your ancestor had to pay close attention to the bad stuff, the maybe tiger and the, the grass rather than the good stuff, the sunset. So we have our brains wired to pay attention to the bad stuff. And when there's no actual bad stuff around, there are no tigers around, checking out my window to make sure there are no, 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 no tigers at all out there. Right now, we then start to think about the the, the server, the server. Then we start to think about the bad stuff in our minds, the paper tigers in our minds. So how do you release those? And that's why bringing yourself to the positive over and over and over again, building that circuit, firing those neurons. There's a really cool um, scanning electron microscope image in this brain of two neurons in real time. Now, this is real-time actual neurons, and you see them, and you this the firing together, and you, they're at opposite ends of the screen like this, and you see them growing together, and after a few moments, they touch, and then they intertwine like this, and now they wire together. And the whole process in real time took 12 seconds. Mm. 12 seconds of wiring a new circuit. So if you're paying attention to the beauty, if you're paying attention to the love, if you're paying attention to the joy and the blackbirds outside, 
and you're wiring those circuits, then you create a different brain in time. And again, 22.8% growth in Graham Phillips's dentate gyrus in his emotional regulation circuit in eight weeks. In one meditation circuit, one meditation session, you are already starting to produce that neural growth. Are all these meditations in the book or are they also on a website? Like, do you have any guided meditations that you offer or something like that? Like, how's, how does all this work? How, do you, how are you putting this out? Yeah, so uh, the book and, and the book website, the book's website is blissbrain.com. And the book is there and also eight guided meditations. And again, we've researched these now. These are the ones that began to produce that wiring change in the brain in four weeks. So yeah, that, that's the best place to go. Use the meditations. And I can just promise you, you won't need to sweat remembering to do them. Once you've got into one once, you'll feel the neurochemicals being released in your brain. You'll want to do more meditations and then different meditations as well. So blissbrain.com is the best place to get both meditations and the book. Yeah, I'm definitely going to give it a try. It, it sounds a whole lot cheaper than um, like going to South America and doing <laughs> ayahuasca. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we have people doing it now, and we, we have uh, a new experimental program, which we're researching now, because uh, we're trying to now measure business productivity. We've measured anxiety and depression. We know they go down. We know that cortisol drops a lot. We know that immune function boost, gets boosted a lot. And we know that, that the kind of uh, immune antibody that actually combats coronaviruses is boosted dramatically in just about two days of doing this. So we, we, we've done a lot of this research. The new research is on business productivity and um you, you get better at business as you do this. And you don't have to go to South America, you don't have to go anywhere. You just need to, to, to do it regularly. Mm -hmm. But we're also researching experienced meditators. Like one of the people in this new study is, has been doing it for 41 years. So can doing this little hack improve the meditation of a 41 year, four decades of meditation? And the answer is yes. Other people are novices. They've never been able to succeed at any meditation style they've tried. And they try this one and they find they're there the very first time. So it's effective both for novices and for experts. Wow. That's incredible. Um, do you think that meditation can result in miracles? Like in the book, um, Autobiography <laughs> of a Yogi by Yogananda, yeah. you know, like you go through all these different teachers and all of them have their own different type of thing like one guy can levitate one guy can be in two places at one time one guy can go without food for like 10 years do, do you think any of those things are possible through meditation those are called cities in hinduism mm -hmm. and what what teachers recommend is ignoring them and you may find you start to have psi phenomena psi and those things like clairvoyance, telekinesis, telepathy, synchronicity, and so on happening. So a big study done in 2019, published in 2019, big high-level study of meditators found that they have more of those in their lives than the average person. And the more they meditate, the more than they have. So you might well start to find a lot more psi phenomena, not, not necessarily not eating for 10 years, but you might find, for example, you can tell what other people are thinking. You might find you think of a friend and that friend phones you right that moment. You get an email from somebody who hasn't been in touch with you for 10 years. So you'll find more of those things happening. 
And there's actually really good science for why that happens. You'll have more of it. But the what what we recommend, what the, the really uh, authentic teachers recommend is ignoring those cities because a lot of people get all all into them. They say, oh, well, look, you know, my teacher can. In fact, there's a story mm-hmm. I tell in, in Mind to Matter about these two groups of disciples, and they were having an argument about whose meditation master was the most advanced. And the one group said, well, our meditation master is the most advanced because he can levitate and he can teleport and he can bilocate. And the second group said, oh, that's nothing. Our, our meditation master can do much more advanced stuff. The first group was, huh? What's more advanced than that? <clears throat> second group said, oh, our master, he eats when he's hungry. He sleeps when he's tired. And he drinks when he's thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about teleportation. It's about being here now. Being a loving person, being a compassionate person, being there in your body and for your body, for the people in the world around you, being useful here. It's not the cities, it's the day-to-day life. That's the really important thing. In fact, when we measure uh, meditation practitioners, there's a kind of a jargon in the in the in the measurement trade, eyes open and eyes closed. Mm-hmm. And you can close your eyes, meditate, and you can reach this elevated state of bliss brain. I mean, there are people who will will look at their brain scans in an MRI or an EEG, and they will blow us away by what they're capable of doing in terms of brain waves and brain states. But we actually are much less interested in that than we are in eyes open. And if we can train a person to be in that state eyes open, Mm -hmm. that is where the rubber meets the road, because you want to be in that space. Meditation training is only to get you to the point where you can do it with eyes open. And so these great masters, their eyes are open. They're mm-hmm. washing the dishes. They're cleaning the poopy diaper. They're walking mm-hmm. the dog. And they're in bliss spring. Yeah. That's the goal of meditation. Meditation is just a tool to get you there. After a while, it's training meals. You throw them away. And you're in daily meditation all, 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 all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to present this as being like you know something that's happening in two weeks. Uh, this is an advanced state and for advanced adepts. But you can start to feel what those brain states are like within a few minutes when you meditate in these deep ways and re- release those neurochemicals in your brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I mean, that, that brings two things to mind for me. Um, one is my first meditation teacher. She was a Tibetan nun and she taught meditation with kind of with keeping your eyes open, like soften your gaze, but keep them open. And uh, then there was another group of, of monks that I would go hang out with. They were from Sri Lanka, and they would close their eyes. But those guys would also, like, by the end of the meditation, they'd be, like, laying in the corner <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> they, they were pretty funny. Um, but there's, like, the, you know, the, the two different ones. And, and then there's, you know, in Zen... Zen is kind of like what you're talking about, where meditation could be washing the dishes. It could be, yes. you know, waxing yeah. the car. It could be doing whatever. I could be doing this podcast. It could be a type of meditation if my full awareness is in it. Yes. Yeah. And your whole life is, 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 is meant to be that way. And then you also have a much, much, much better life. You aren't tormented by fear. 
and doubt and uncertainty and even when everyone else around you is you find you are this rock solid being in consciousness because your your whole your whole sense of who you are comes from non-local you know you are the universe you know you are infinite and you are simply living this finite life for mm -hmm. 60 or 70 or 90 or 110 years however long your lifespan is but you know that that's not who you are it's just kind of clothing you're wearing for a short while your real being your real your real presence is that infinite self and when you live as that infinite non-local self inhabiting a local body for a while it's a whole different perspective and you know you may get sick you may lose your house you may lose your money bad things may happen good things may happen but you know you know you're not the drama and you're mm -hmm. certainly not the drama in the world outside of you so when all these things are going on that are disturbing other people in the world outside of you you have this core and again that's resilience you want to have that core knowing of yourself as infinite and then you do that not just in terms of a life you do that every every day every morning you let go of that sense of local self and spend half an hour maybe 45 minutes just bathing in the infinite and th that reminds you that you are that self and then that's the perspective from which you live your local life so all the things that used to disturb your emotions just don't anymore mm -hmm. and you become emotionally stable and again that's when you've established this trait of being in that compassionate loving joyful place and again we're we're seeing brain changes happen and that 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 brain wave of happiness increases sevenfold 700 percent mm -hmm. people are far 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 happier when they're in that state and anybody can do this so this is really i think where <clears throat> where we're, we're meant to all be going and the quicker you get there the longer the life you have in that happy space yeah you know I like that perspective and I totally agree that, um, you know, we are not our bodies and, and be, simply just because of that, there's it really it, is the end. It means there's, there's nothing to fear. You know, it, it's not all that important. I mean, it's important, but it's not as important as we think it is. And, um, I was just, it's kind of funny. Like you were mentioning synchronicities. I was doing an interview, the one before you and she, was in communication with an angel called um, Metronon or something like that. I forget the name. And she was very serious, you know, and she was talking about like, like her purpose, <laughs> this angel came to her and told her her purpose in life is to, to raise everybody's vibration. And I was like, um, and she goes, you, you know what your purpose is? I said, yeah, my, my, my purpose in life is just to have fun. <laughs> you know, I said, I said, I, I, I just came here for the party, <laughs> you know? Because to me, I think that's the most healing thing, you know. And you find laughter and joy just permeates your life after a while. So absolutely, you're just playing. That's why I think of that image of a child at play. Mm -hmm. watch, watch kids, watch babies. They just love, they play, they just are in that space every day. You don't have to train them to be in that state. You know, babies laugh something like 600 times a day. Adults laugh around 20 times a day. Like, what? What goes on to make us think life is be so serious? It's not. And we, we are meant here to be playing. Some things don't work out, you know. Some things don't work out well, and you just play anyway. Mm -hmm. and, and the other thing that came up in that conversation was she, she asked me, goes, well, how, how can you have that point of view when there's so much negativity in the world and on social media and on the news and here and there? And, and my thought was like, 
well, maybe there can't be such a thing as negativity if it's all coming from the same source. I think that um, social negativity and the news is our collective uh, expression of our individual psyche. Mm -hmm. So as individuals, our brains are trained to look for threats, and that's how we survive. And as societies, as groups, we, we, we learned that as well. So if, you know, to go back to the Paleolithic era, we'll go back after the last ice age in Europe 20,000 years ago, there were small groups of human beings, homo sapiens, uh, competing with other other predators, other, other groups, Neanderthals were still around then, and they were trying to figure out how to survive in this environment. And so our, our media and our social experiences are often about survival, and we would band together in the olden days to to help each other survive. Mm -hmm. And so banding together and looking for the bad stuff is natural. And who's the threat? Who's the enemy? Well, is it all these the Neanderthals? We have to demonize other people. These are all behaviors inherited from the past. But Gary, <clears throat> we have to rapidly, as a species, grow beyond this and embrace a different way of being where we aren't reenacting these old survival dramas because they're going to kill us. You know, if we keep on fighting among each other, fighting among ourselves as, mm -hmm. as a human species, we have to learn to collaborate to solve grave problems. At the end of this brain, I have things like maps of Florida, map of Florida today, map of Florida in 2050, if current ocean modeling predicts what will be around in Florida in only 30 years time, and it's not much. Pretty much everything south of, you know, like Vero Beach is gone underwater. So that's one problem, climate change. And we, we need to solve that as as as, as a species. Uh, things like income disparity gaps, the poor people and rich people, they aren't sustainable. So how do we solve solve that? All the social justice mm -hmm. activities we have to do. So it's really important that we we transcend our tribal conditioning. It's what we were, what worked for us to survive after the Ice Age. It's what's killing us today. Mm -hmm. So we have to make a huge evolutionary leap. And the good news is with our, is with our brains evolving, we can. So I mentioned the 1% throughout history focused on spiritual growth. Between 1980 and 2004, that rose to 4%, quadrupled in only 25 years. And by the last couple of years, it's up to 14%. So it's rising dramatically. Wow. A lot more people are like this, and they're experiencing that creativity, that resilience, and that joy. So I end Bliss Brain on this incredibly powerful, optimistic, data-driven note of saying we are destined for a remarkable future of thriving as a species and the planet thriving along with us because we're going to solve these problems as all these creative, mm -hmm. resilient people and these new brains come online. We're changing our brains in real time. I mean, we didn't even know that in science 20 years ago. Now right. we know we are producing substantial brain change quickly, and we're getting all this leverage over the major problems of the planet. Yeah. You know, I, I think the solution for all these major problems is actually kind of simple. I think one would two, it actually would take two things, elimination of money and elimination of ownership. If we got rid of those two things, it would everything would become pretty pretty equal. It would level the playing field. Yeah, and so um, 
we're we're going to see social change, and we're going to see, of course, we know, we know we're in the middle of huge technological change, but we're we're going to see huge social change as well. And it's hard to predict which way direction it'll go. Right. The more people are available to that non-local awareness, and then bringing those non-local ideas into awareness, the better. Like just one one example, I'll mention two examples. One is carbon sequestration. We know we have to get carbon out of the air, and there are plants in operation right now that are giant turbines and they are sucking air in and shooting it out the other end, carbon neutral. Mm-hmm. And they're they're making bricks out of this carbon, building materials out of carbon. These plants are around right now. And if we have enough of them, we can make a dent in carbon in the air. Another example is the Trillion Tree Project. And this has been endorsed by a lot of corporations, been endorsed by a lot of governments. And essentially there are two trillion trees on earth. If we had another trillion trees, we would bring carbon levels down to the level of pre-industrial revolution levels very, very quickly. So how do we plant a trillion trees? And there are some very smart people who are devoting their minds Mm -hmm. to this problem and a lot of money going into the Trillion Tree Project. So uh, again, we have these solutions to make radical shifts in our planetary well-being and with people focusing on non-local solutions. They're going to be creative, get together in, in, in groups in which they help facilitate those solutions and produce a different planet in the future. Yeah. One of the ones that I kind of like too is allergy. Like because allergy creates an enormous amount of oxygen and it can also be used as a fuel. Yes. <laughs> it's like, you know, something like something that we refer to as scum. <laughs> yes. The scum solution. Yeah. <laughs> Problem solved. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're only solutions. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty cool. Um, so before we wrap this up, where can my listeners find you? So blissbrain.com is one place you can get the book for free. You pay shipping and handling. And also you get the eight meditations at blissbrain.com as well. Also click on the tabs and see about our events. We have hundreds of practitioners who are certified and trained in these methods. We have workshops happening all over the world. We also have virtual workshops, which you can take and get certified. And there are all kinds of entry points there, but blissbrain.com is one starting point. And the other one is that we did do research on the these immunoglobulins that combat viruses. And we've been, we've shown in that research that they're very effective at doing that. So these methods actually re- produce a reduction in cortisol and increase in immune function. Mm-hmm. And that meditation that, that helps your body do that, that is at the website, DOS, my name, D-A-W, S-O-N, Dawson Gift, G-I-F-T, DawsonGift.com. We've actually moved that meditation on boosting your immune system to the top of the page there. So you can get that that quickly, a bunch of other things as well. But uh, that meditation has now, now been translated into, I think, 14 languages. It's reached hundreds of thousands of people all over the planet. And it's really worth boosting your immune system always, but especially now. So thisbrain.com for the book, DawsonGift.com. For the immune boosting meditation. Wow. Well, thank you so much, man, for, for not just being on my <laughs> show, but for, for doing what you do. Cause there's, you know, what you're doing is the kind of stuff that can definitely change the world. Yeah. 
by changing ourselves, Gary, we change the world. And it's worth doing that. And of course, the byproduct is you're happy every day. You're just playing every day. You're just in the state of play, joy, creativity, mm -hmm. and fun. And so you're making a difference, but <laughs> you're also having a, a fantastic time doing it. That's the best way to do it, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for being on. And I will post the links to your website in the notes to this episode. And I'm definitely going to actually going to get your book right after the show because I'm really curious to try these meditations. Um, and, and this was awesome. And you are welcome back anytime. Thanks. I appreciate that. I'd love to. Thank you. All right. Well, hang on one second and I'm just going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.